You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. Hello. Please let me see your ticket stubs for the double-edged double bill. This week, Stuart Gordon unleashes the castle freak from beyond. Each week, Adam Thomas and Thomas Mariani come to the table to discuss the randomly selected yin and yang of a double feature. Then, both will have to pick a number between 1 and 10 in order to seal their fates for the next episode. One will have two good movies, the other two bad ones. Let the chaos begin. And I am Adam Thomas, and uh, I was going to make a Castle Freak joke here, but I don't think that's uh, suitable. So I'm not going to do it. And I'm Thomas Mariani, and uh, look at him at my penile gland, just sticking down on my forehead, you can touch it if you want. Nope. Oh, okay. But we are not the only two people on here tonight. We have a returning guest, someone we haven't had on for quite a while, and we're glad to have him back here on the show, Mr. Desmond Alexander Peel. Desmond, welcome back. Oh, hello. Thank you for having me, and uh, excited to be joining you all, and I'm going to kiss you. Well, I mean... You know, we can save that for after the show, for right. all of our escapades after that. We've got to stay professional on the air. Uh, but welcome back, Desmond. And obviously, uh, we wanted to have you on for a, a great horror-related subject, uh, even though the circumstances of it are admittingly unfortunate, uh, because, you know, about a month ago, uh, we lost a great in terms of uh, horror directors. We lost Mr. Stuart Gordon, uh, who, you know, many would know for Reanimator and some of the movies we might be talking about right now. As you kind of mentioned before the show, it was a real bummer to hear about his passing when that happened. Yeah, he's uh, he's one of my favorite horror directors. Dagon is actually my favorite Stuart Gordon film, which is criminally underrated. Um, but he was just such a fantastic director, and he brought some of, you know, the, the, the best and horror films and B-movies with, like, Barbara Crampton and Jeffrey Combs. So as sad as I am to know that that he's gone, I'm I'm happy to talk about uh, these two movies. What was the first one of his films that you saw? Reanimator. That was a moment where I discovered Barbara Crampton, and from then on, I've had a major crush on her. Of course, as, as many a great horror fan has. I know, Adam, you talked about this briefly at the end of our last episode uh, when we teased mm-hmm. this one, but uh, you mentioned that Stuart Gordon is pretty much the reason you are a horror fan to this day. Yeah, Stuart Gordon and single-handedly Reanimator. I was absolutely terrified of horror movies when I was a kid. I still watch them, uh, but like, you know, between the fingers and we have nightmares and everything until I saw Reanimator, which oddly enough, I realized, you know, the comedy in it and the fun of it. And I just fell in love with Jeffrey Combs and Barbara Crampton and just the whole idea of using gore and everything just to get a different reaction other than terror out of somebody. And uh, yeah, I absolutely, absolutely uh would not be as big of a fan without uh, Stuart Gordon, Reanimator. And I'm also with um, Desmond. Dagon's my favorite of his as well. Which we've covered previously on the show, if you go way back into the archives when we uh, 
covered that for our Sea Creature double feature episode we did. Mm-hmm. For me, I immediately came to Stuart Gordon's films a bit later. I didn't discover him until college. It was a reanimator, obviously. I'd heard so much about it probably because I was such a huge Sam Raimi fan growing up. Sam Raimi kind of had that portal that uh, Stuart Gordon had for you necessarily, Adam. Uh, but with Reanimator, it is definitely a similar vibe in terms of just the horror comedy and the over-the-top gore. But what I like about Stuart Gordon, especially finding out later that he came to film pretty late in his life even. He was like in his mid-30s or so. You know, much later than most people come to film at. Because he was doing plays long before that he was in the theater world. And you can kind of see that in his movies, not in like it's too stagey, but in a way that he really appreciates sort of the theatricality and performance in a way that most other like sort of genre filmmakers might not necessarily. Um, and you can see that through Reanimator, even up until his last few films, that dude really liked the idea of keeping sort of the performers in a space where they respected the characters as opposed to like going too over the top. And it's like, oh, it's a dumb horror movie. They All, all those performers now in Ampus movies treated the horror seriously, despite how silly it might actually look. And that's one of the things that I've always loved about Stuart Gordon films is the theatrics of his films. And then you add in, of course, Jeffrey Combs and Barbara Crampton, that just brings it to another level. Um, and I, I would even say, like, one of the films that really feels like it's a stage play is one of the films that we're covering. And when I'm watching it, it's like, God, this would be really good on stage. But we'll get into that more later. It almost feels kind of like all those old Grand Guignol kind of um, works, uh, like on the stage, where just like people covered in guts and gore but really hamming it up in a way that really fits the circumstances. I could definitely see that. Even Reanimator was a musical after a certain point, which Stuart Gordon adapted for the stage. Right. Yeah, I know. I had my chance one time to go see it, and unfortunately I missed out, and I was really fucking bummed. But another thing, you know, Gordon, too, that he did, he brought a lot of people into Lovecraft. Like, Mm -hmm. a lot of people. You know, H.P. Lovecraft's Reanimator. I think for a while they even tied Castle Freak to Lovecraft uh, from beyond. You know, Dagon, there was a ton of them. And uh, he also got me started down that road, too. So, you know, you don't want to go down that road. But uh, (laughs) I absolutely, yeah. Stuart Gordon's responsible for a lot, a lot of fandom. When I saw Dagon, that was when I was like, I really want to read more Lovecraft. And it got me down that rabbit hole of uh, looking into Cthulhu and all that stuff. Especially when that's so hard to adapt in general, given yeah. sort of like cosmic horror, exactly. like all the unfathomable, and you kind of made it fathomable to some extent. Um, as we'll talk about with uh, both our movies, technically are kind of related to Lovecraft. We'll get into that a bit. Uh, but if you're new to the show, basically every week, Adam and I uh, have two movies each. One of us has two good movies. One of us has two bad movies. Each of us have assigned those a number between one and ten. And then at the end of every episode, we pick number between one and ten for the following week's you know, choices, so we get a good and a bad feature uh, for our topic of Stuart Gordon, which, by the way, was suggested when we asked for topics uh, out there by Will Torres and Scott Crawford, previous guest on the show. Our good pick is From Beyond from 1986, which was Adam's good choice, and my bad choice uh, was Castle Freak uh, from 1995, though keep in mind, Castle Freak is mostly just bad in relative terms of I wanted to really cover Castle Freak, and I didn't think Adam would pick it as a good pick, so we're going to cover it, and I'm so happy we're going to. But let's get to our first feature, From Beyond. Every journey begins in the mind. Something's coming. A flight of imagination. A vision of what might lie across the universe. Or within the deepest regions of the subconscious. 
Dr. Edward Pretorius is about to embark on such a journey. Humans are such easy prey. From the makers of Reanimator, from beyond. So, From Beyond came out October 24th, 1986 from Stuart Gordon, which he co-wrote with uh, Dennis Paoli and Brian Usna. Brian Usna, of course, would be a very frequent collaborator of his, and also would make similar style films even without Stuart Gordon. If you've ever seen Society, which, Jesus, Society. Yeah, society is something. <laughs> yes. That's something. Good lord. <laughs> the uh, shunting. Oh, the shunting, Jesus. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, so we're talking about uh, From Beyond, which was his second feature uh, after... Reanimator, interestingly, only came out about a year and a week after Reanimator, which is kind of insane, given how elaborate this movie gets after a certain point. Uh, and if you don't know, it's basically the story of uh, Dr. Crawford Tillagast, played by Jeffrey Combs, who uh, is teaming up with uh, the Dr. Pretorius character, uh, played by Ted Sorrell, uh, to create this basic machine that like can go in between dimensions, and then ends up sucking Ted Sorrell, basically, into that dimension and becoming this weird sort of monster mutant creature. Dr. Crawford, while he is in in an asylum, people think that he uh, actually killed his doctor friend. He catches the eye of Barbara Crampton as uh, the uh, Dr. Catherine McMichael's character, who is like, oh, I really want to investigate this particular weird interdimensional machine that you've created. And they bring along Ken Foray, and uh, shit goes really bonkers after that. This was one of those movies when I was a kid, like even after I saw Reanimator, there was always a sort of like a reputation about this one, about like the subject matter and the sex and, you know, some of the gore and everything like this one was kind of like a on another level where people like, oh, man, but you've been you've you've seen from beyond. And uh, so I I, it's not that I stayed away from it because of that. It was actually kind of hard to find for a long time. Like, even when they put it out on DVD, it was almost impossible to find it. Um, until, of course, Scream Factory did it here a couple years ago. But when I finally saw it, right away, I'm like, oh, man, this is the best Barbara Crampton's probably ever been. And B, I'm like, oh, man, this is also one of the best, you know, fucking uh, Jeffrey Holmes has ever been. And then the practical effects that you still see some of these character creature designs and ideas carried over into so many fucking movies. So many movies. I mean, just alone, the the flying like eel things look like the dream demons from Freddy's Dead. Pretorius looks like fucking, what's his name, in Slither. You know, it's just, there's so much influence in this movie. And it's wild. It's a wild fucking movie. But if you're willing to set and sort of, you know, suspend belief for a little while, it's really hard to find better as far as cosmic horror. Because this is definitely sort of cosmic horror. It's... You know, the, the things that you can't see that are always there. Uh, and if they see you, then, you know, they're going to want to attack you. It's a bizarre, wild, sort of sexy movie. I just absolutely love it. I, I fucking love this movie. Even though I've done my top five list, depending on how I'm feeling that day, sometimes from beyond is my number one favorite Stuart Gordon film because the practical effects are incredible. There's some really great kills in this film. And then it goes even wilder once someone is killed and you think, wait, how is he coming out of his body like that? How does this happen? But it's it's so mind-boggling as you're watching it. And this is a film that I just did a blind buy on. I saw Reanimator and I decided I have to watch everything. And this was one that just blew me away. I've I'd never seen anything like this before. The closest thing I can find that 
is like this, um, that's more recent, is like The Void or uh, Color Out of Space. But there's something about this film, not only the performances, but also just like Barbara Crampton's character being more the uh, Herbert West character. Like, that's a total mind trip. I've never seen her like that in a film. It's incredible. Yeah, I really like um, basically the sort of confidence that Stuart Gordon had just with such a little amount of time between this and Reanimator. How with this second movie, he's already like, okay, I'm going to switch up. I'm going to get my same sort of repertory players, given he's, you know, obviously so accustomed to the stage. And I'm going to have them switch on their versions of what they would do. Because, as you mentioned, Barbara Crampton kind of plays more of the uh, Jeffrey Combs character from the last movie. And it's the vice versa thing with Jeffrey Combs as well, playing a bit meeker. At the same time, I, I really like how they switch those things up there as well, sort of the different dynamics, uh, especially because, admittingly, the one thing I might have any kind of criticism about with Reanimator, which I would say is my favorite of his, is that Barbara Crampton's kind of like a typical damsel in distress type character, and she is definitely not that in this case. She goes full head-on into this weird phantasmagoria of weird shit that's going on here. She's just so curious and fascinated by the idea. She can't help but just jump right in, which I love. Yeah, it's it's so rare to see her, her like that in a film and to see her just chew up the scene. Plus, I mean, seeing her get into that dominatrix outfit, I'm, I'm all in. <laughs> yeah, and I, I love even that the ego on her character alone is, but you got Telegas even telling her, like, no, I, you are literally doing the exact same thing Pretorius did. I see it. This is what he did, and look what happened to him. I don't want this to happen to you. And she's like, eh, I can handle it. Stop it. And she like, she's like, nah, fuck you, man. And I just love that confidence of her character. And even like, like Desmond just alluded to, and then she, you know, even puts on the dominatrix outfit and everything and she knows she's slipping she knows she's losing it but she just can't she can't stop herself and it's 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 a really cool sort of uh character arc to follow especially for a female lead in this time in this genre especially uh it's not only refreshing but like i said it's sexy it's alluring it's disturbing and it's just fun to watch I really love the bit in particular where um, Ken Forrest talking about like all the stuff that happened to him. Just like, oh well, I mean, we have to, you know, so much stuff can happen with this kind of technology. And he's just like, well, how does he explain the hard on to that guy during the middle of all that? And she's like, well, you know, it activates a lot of things, the penal gland, including the sexual drive. So we must investigate further. <laughs> it's a bit just like you perv. And then following it up with saying, so much to learn. <laughs> yeah, so much to learn. The sort of bashfulness that she has. Yeah. I really dig that. Um, but at the same time, it also really works for Combs, who obviously after Herbert West is such like a very villainous kind of vile character, doesn't give a shit. And he's a lot more sympathetic here in a way that I really appreciate, but at the same time, he's not afraid to go just into full weird territory with once he gets that like penal gland implant, and especially when he's sucking out Stuart Gordon's wife's eye, um, of course, is one of the classic scenes of the movie. <laughs> it's so gross. Yep. And just like disturbing and weird. And especially with this makeup where he's got the gland popping out the whole time. Like it's it's so disturbing. But and the gland is playing peekaboo. Oh, I know. <laughs> uh. <laughs> but I also really like the fact that in with that particular bit, that feels like something that would come out of like the sort of stage part of Stuart Gordon's head. Where it feels definitely just like, oh, we're gonna have two actors, one has weird makeup and stuff, just do this really weird scene where they're this close together. But it has that kind of energy where like it almost feels like you're just in the room with them in the same way you'd be like on the stage because of how weirdly intimate that really disturbing sequence is. <laughs> 
Uh, but I mean, admittedly, all the special effects stuff in here. This is obviously coming after Reanimator, which had some makeup effects stuff and some like small things, obviously, given how low that production was. And then this one just turns everything up to 11 in terms of some of the stuff Adam was mentioning, like particularly any of the stuff with Ted Sorrell, who doesn't have much acting credit after this or before this, but I love how into this particular role he gets, especially when he's just covered in all sorts of goop. Like, the perfect adjective for this movie is goopy. Yeah, and, you know, just wearing all of those prosthetics and then, you know, there's there's so many pieces to his um, transformation where it's like you can't really tell where he begins and then where everything else starts. It's it's wild. And it is gross. They all they look like they're either all covered by the pink slime from Ghostbusters 2 or, you know, even <laughs> it's so gross. But like the South Park episode, it's ectoplasm. There is a ghost. <laughs> Like it's just, it's it's just all so nasty and drippy, and then like, you know, the scariest thing for me now watching is like, fucking nobody saw Ted Sorrell's shoulder hair, and I was like, we gotta trim that because it just glistens and shines in the pink light, and it's just so distracting to me. Like, because the thing is, then they show him from behind, and you see his like flat little cute ass, but he's got he's got no back hair. It's so it's just on their shoulders, like on the top of them. It's really fucking weird. So either A, they started to shave it and they just didn't go all the way, or B, he just doesn't grow hair on his back at all, but just on his shoulder. I don't want to get I guess we're getting maybe a little bit too much into body hair. But I thought uh, This this is body hair cast with Adam and Thomas. That's what we do. <laughs> yeah, so right. yeah, our ne- next week, Abe Vagoda. But no, it's just No, oh, hey, that's not one week, that's a mini series. It's yeah, all about right. Abe Vagoda. But, uh, no, it just is, I don't know. I just, it, it just added even to me the uh, factor that he's like clearly got like Vaseline in his gross shoulder pubes. And it's just, it's really weird. And that pink lighting you're even talking about, the sort of magenta lights, uh, obviously was a big influence all the way to the recent color out of space. You can kind of tell, especially that, that works. It's such a weird choice, but it fits so perfectly for like a sort of, color that makes you feel out of sorts because if it was like green or blue a more traditional sort of like horror sci-fi color you'd be like oh, okay this is like traditional makes sense the pink is off kilter it, it like really puts you on ease just like ooh, what, what kind of weird realm is this from nothing is this kind of shade of magenta in our reality i just love right. that, especially once it like completely encompasses the whole house makes it like instantly ethereal and like you said not of our sort of realm and reality uh yeah i I absolutely agree i think that is the smartest choice is that just the lighting in this is really really fantastic especially with that sort of pink magenta-ish color and even works to disguise certain things that happen like especially some of the effects that i could bet you like the big snake thing that's underneath the in the basement area would look really shitty in traditional lighting but that pink lighting makes it look scarier it would look so fucking stupid there's no question you can't properly light that thing. But just like uh, you couldn't properly light the Praetorius monster either. I think what helps hide all the seams is the pink lighting. Because it's almost like keeps everything the same tone on the body. And it's, you know, pink mixed with, you know, flesh. It, it's it's all keeps it sort of regulated to the same sort of spectrum. So, yeah, I mean, it just works perfect. And I feel like that just goes back to his uh, theater background. You know, you, you learn how to be able to make things seem like they're a part of the world that you're setting up in this theater and you, you find ways to to be able to have kind of creative ways to be able to have that come across and that 
definitely is being used within this film and his other movies as well. Yeah, and especially with like sort of how the people sort of react off of the special effects there. They're obviously given this is eighty six. Most of the time when they're sort of interacting with these things that aren't like literally in the same frame, they're clearly not there, like the sort of big claymation monster that comes down and attacks Jeffrey Combs. He and the other performers really sell sort of the thread of all this, especially when you see somebody as big as a Ken Foray becoming like so terrified by all this stuff, which we, we haven't mentioned much about Ken Foray, but he is such a perfect like glue that keeps this movie together for so much of it. Um, that and also his weird banana hammock. <laughs> At one point, just like, oh, damn, you just sleep in that? I mean, good on you. Hey, man. <laughs> yeah, whatever. I mean, look at the shape he's in in this, though. If I was in yeah. that kind of shape, I'd yeah. wear that fucking banana hammock, too. Are you kidding me? I'd be walking around with it on right now. <laughs> but he's such a great, like, actual audience surrogate character, given, like, we got mm-hmm. Crazy Barbara Crampton and nervous, out of his wits, Jeffrey Combs. You got Ken Ford to be the perfect middle ground between the two of them, and just perfectly react off, just like, what the fuck's even happening? And even just the great acting of him seeing Barbara Crampton in that dominatrix outfit and hiding every single urge to, like, she's really hot in that outfit, but this is weird. I gotta make sure she doesn't do anything. <laughs> That's real acting. There's not a lot of times um, in horror films where I'll feel truly bummed when a character dies. But when Ken Forey's character dies, I'm like, damn. Like, every single time I watch it, I get bummed out. I love watching him. I feel like this is one of my favorite roles that he's been in. Because, like you were saying, he's kind of like, you know, just the... Like the audience, the everyman, the the person who's kind of coming in and being like, wow, you two are fucking nuts. And this is a weird situation. And I didn't sign up. <laughs> I didn't sign up for this. We're leaving. He still helps. He still wants to, you know, be the good guy. And he's such a good character. I guess the lesson we can all take away from this is don't be a black guy named Bubba in a movie. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And don't have that light shine directly on you when all the fucking moths are coming at you. Which that, yeah. that also just... I do agree that I feel bummed when he dies, but also it is such a terrifying death that's like, oh, your limbs get eaten, and then you're like alive long enough to see your skeleton body and then die. That's so Ugh, tough. That's that so was tough. such a good effect. I love yes. that effect. Yeah, I don't, you know, if you made me uh, give you a list of ways I don't want to die, that's going to be on there. It's uh, <laughs> And it's gross. It, it, you know that's the way he's going to go out, though. You know he's going to go out by getting eaten by these creatures. Almost instantly, because even though... You know, right when they first turn on the resonator and they're all there, Telegast is telling him, don't move, do not move, do not move. And he's instantly like, what the hell is that? And walks up and puts his hand up to it. Like, like oh, this guy's just, it's not going to end well for him. It really doesn't end well for most of the characters in this movie. Um, especially just when we get to the weird sort of climax, which is honestly one of my favorite horror movie climaxes. And in particular, sort of the weird battle that Telegast has. <laughs> with fucking Ted Sorrell. Just like, it's this weird, like, oh, it's our hero moment, only they're like two skulls biting each other. I know. It's so messed up. And even before that, when he gets like halfway eaten by that worm and then all of his body hair is gone, you know, Barbara Crampton's character is like, okay, well, you two can just leave and whatever. And she changes into her dominatrix costume. It's like one of the most uncomfortable scenes in the movie, but it's also hot at the same time because of Barbara Crampton and you're like I don't know how I should feel and that happens so many times throughout the movie where you're like this is really weird (laughs) 
I mean, it's a recurring thing for Stuart Gordon, too, is just, like, mixing the weird sort of edges of, like, hey, we're going to be sexual here, but also we're going to be um, very over-the-top and silly, but in a way that never feels exploitive as much as right. just disturbed. I think that's that's what really works about it, is it doesn't feel like it's going too far, especially with, like, a Barbara Crampton, who's always been on the side of Stuart Gordon in that regard, when she's been nude multiple times in this movie. It's just, like, she really still has a lot of power, especially in this movie. It's just more that she's gotten her power just briefly taken away by not like a man as much as just like cosmic awful terror supported by a man. Well, and it also just never feels sleazy. Also, that's right. the that's the difference with Stuart Gordon films. You can have like nudity and sex, but it never feels sleazy. It's always there's there's always like this kind of tastefulness to it. Yeah, you know, I, I absolutely agree with you because you know, a lot of people at the time he was compared to, because he was really, they came up right around the same time. Maybe a couple years difference, but there was always sort of the Stuart Gordon, and then there was William Lustig right around the same time. At least of that ilk, you know, from sort of this the stage and dirty sort of grindhouse style of movies. I mean, I'd argue William Lustig obviously does them a little bit more. Uh, what are you talking about? Maniac's a great film for the whole family. I don't yeah, know what you're yeah, talking about. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> But his, his his did always feel sleazy. All William Lustig movies are just kind of sleazy. The nudity and the sex, it feels dirty, like you shouldn't be watching it. But uh, yeah, no, Stuart Gordon never comes across that way. The nudity never comes across as distracting. It's just a, it's a storytelling method. Or it's important for the character to be nude in that scene. It never feels uh, gratuitous. Maybe it feels like there's at least like, the element of like, say, Barbara Crampton is like, she's being like, taken advantage of in a way that feels upsetting and it's generally not titillating when like she gets exposed or anything like that she's being manipulated horribly in a way that you know isn't also exploitive it's so much just like showing the true ominous disturbing power of like ted sorrel with all of this cosmic energy on top of it this barbara crampton also has i think an underrated mvp last line of any movie that line is so perfect for, like, summing up just the weirdness that's going on. Just, like, asking, hey, what happened up there? And you have to, instead of going through this elaborate story, just, like, three words. It ate him. And then insanely laughing. Yep. <laughs> yeah. it was, I love that. That's, I love how this film ends, with her just completely going insane. Yeah, I mean, and the thing is, hey, you'd have to, right? Like, any person would go insane after all this. And B... How else could you end this movie? I mean, that's the only way you, this movie can end. It's just on a, not on crazy ass note, you know, a, a crazy last line and a psycho laugh. I, I just, I wouldn't want to see this wrap up in any other way. I really, really want it. And if you're doing true Lovecraft, then people need to be going insane at some point. And now, where do you think, especially this works as sort of like a Lovecraft adaptation, especially? Uh, well, the thing is, it's not incredibly faithful. But what it does get right is the drive a normal person would have to see and experience the unseeable and unspeakable and, you know, almost unfathomable and and what it does to them. I mean, even, you know, Telegas, he doesn't want to, but he, he he's still drawn to it. He's still, even though I'm going to destroy it, he still goes up there. He's still, you know, and Praetorius, he's a genius, but he's so smart that he's crazy But and the five senses aren't enough for him. So they get sort of that dark desire from Lovecraft really well in this. And just the idea of these otherworldly beings that are always around us or have always been that we don't know about and we can't explain. Yeah, I couldn't have summed it up better myself. 
Yeah, and I also like the factor that when we sort of get the in-between, between sort of like the, uh, the, the transition from everything being in this horrible nightmare realm to reality, is literally the flip of a switch. I love that idea, and that it's literally like one of those um, bewitched cuts, where it's just like suddenly, boop, oh, everything's gone, and just, you know, we're back to normal. And also, so I like the idea that the sort of unhinged element of our reality is just literally a light switch away. That sort of makes it almost more cosmically terrifying. It's just like, oh, one small turn of a knob, and everything goes into crazy, fucked upville. Think about that at its core, that this world of monsters and unspeakable pleasures and nightmares and, you know, just flesh being, you know, just a vessel and it just sensuality and spirituality and everything is like turning on your garbage disposal. That is so terrifying at its core that anywhere you can look, but, you know, the shadow behind your couch because you can't see what's back there, there's a creature back there or this otherworldly place. And if you turn on the light, then it's going to come out. I mean, it's just scary. It's scary, scary, scary stuff. It taps into like a childhood fear of just like the monster in the closet thing. Like all that's separating you is a yeah. very thin layer from the other world. Yeah, and I don't like it. You heard it here first. <laughs> <laughs> a controversial stance. <laughs> like when the hydrogen collider thing started, you're just like, oh no, you yeah. have no idea what's going to happen. <laughs> nope. Shut it off. Nope. <laughs> you're about to go full Jeffrey Combs, just like, you freaks, get out of there. <laughs> Get yourself a job at the side, Joe. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, I guess that signals we should get into our next film uh, starring Barbara Crampton and Jeffrey Combs. But uh, let's do some final thoughts here. Desmond, your final thoughts on From Beyond. This movie's amazing. It's one of the best by Stuart Gordon in my top three. If you've never seen it, you have to watch it. It's great body horror, great cosmic horror fantastic performances and it's it's a very unique film and you'll get to see a lot of how films today have been so influenced by this movie but highly recommend from beyond adam i mean yeah i i i agree it's this is you know if you go through the pantheon of Stuart and gordon films this is easily in the top three i mean i don't think that i don't think that's even arguable i it's this reanimator dagon for me Personally, uh, not necessarily in that order, but if you like Reanimator and you want to see the same players do another Lovecraft type story, but completely flip it on its head, it's a great double feature with Reanimator. It it really truly is because they're so different, but it's all the same moving pieces, but it's just a different result. It's fantastic. It's terrifying. It's sexy. It it can be funny. Uh, there is a little bit of levity in certain scenes. Very, very small, but it's just it's quite quite a feat of 80s horror sci-fi i I just think it's it's brilliant yeah i I would definitely say it's my second favorite right below reanimator it definitely shows a lot more confidence in the second feature this does not feel like a sophomore slump whatsoever in terms of just how confident Stuart gordon is with all the new bigger effects work and his cast changing up their usual roles from the last time and it feels definitely like he's a guy who was so excited by doing his first film that he really wanted to go as far up as he could with this. And I agree, there's so much influence that can be gleaned here. Like, we didn't mention much about the opening with the old lady that's next door, but that feels straight up like a 50s monster movie. And then the influence that this movie's had later with, I I didn't even know this until I was doing research for this, uh, the resonator sound effects you can hear sampled in Intergalactic by the Beastie Boys, which makes so much sense. Interesting. 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it's definitely one that, as Desmond mentioned, if you had not seen this before, definitely seek it out, especially if you're a big fan of Reanimator. And yeah, we will get into our next feature in a bit. But first, uh, here's an ad for an ESO show you can queue up right after our podcast. Hey, weird podcast people. Join us every week on the Flopcast for a half hour or so of silly conversation about comics, music, Saturday morning cartoons, old movies and TV shows, and chickens. It'll be our little secret. Find us at Flopcast.net and on the ESO Network. Alright, and uh, let's get into our second film, also starring Barbara Crampton and Jeffrey Combs. It is Castle Freak. Stuart Gordon, the master of modern horror, will unleash his most terrifying creation. There's somebody else here! There, there's somebody in the castle! There's a madman in there, but my family is in danger! Reanimators Jeffrey Combs and Barbara Crampton. Castle Freak. So, Castle Freak came out November 14th, 1995. Um, it was also uh, directed by Stuart Gordon, also written by him and uh, Dennis Paoli. And uh, this is, was my choice, and uh, it's a full moon feature uh, from, of course, Charles Band's repertoire of Puppet Master and such, uh, his lovely production company. Um, and of course, even our previous film was from Empire, which was his previous company, right? Yes. Yes, 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 yes. yes that sounds yes. about right. Um, and uh, despite that, these couldn't feel like two completely different movies, <laughs> despite all the <laughs> familiar elements uh, that return here. Um, and I, I chose this, like I said, for our bad pick, but it's in a weird way where I think Castle Freak sort of walks this weird tightrope between being a really bad full moon movie and being a genuinely unsettling Argento-influenced horror movie, especially you can tell by both movies were, like, shot in Italy, this and From Beyond, but this one is very clearly set in Italy from not just the plot, but also anybody who isn't our main characters is Italian. <laughs> like, super Italian. Yeah, oh yeah, very, very Italian. You know, and this came out, what, 95, right? It feels like it came out two years before From Beyond, because it's very low-budget looking. It is incredibly low-budget. And also... Barbara Crampton and Jeffrey Combs have not aged. It's fucking wild. And, uh, Thomas, I can't agree with you more. There are times when this is a bad full moon movie. Especially when the Richard Band score comes in in certain scenes. Oh, the score is so hilariously stupid. <laughs> it's so <laughs> stupid. Because it's got like this whimsical sort of tone to it. And this movie is nothing. <laughs> if not fucking disturbing and crazy and gross. Watching him, just like, am I watching like a kid's medieval fantasy movie? Like, is this a kid in King Arthur's court? <laughs> when I'm hearing yeah, exactly. this stupid music. Oh, but Desmond, Desmond, w- would you agree necessarily that it kind of toes that line between being Bad Full Moon and Great Stuart Gordon? Yeah, this movie is, it's so freaking weird with its tone because it's, like you were saying with the music, it does feel very whimsical. But then it's like you go to a scene where he's biting some chick's tit off, and it's like, yeah, that's not whimsical. That's <laughs> uh, pretty disturbing. As much as like the gore and blood is in his other films, this one is like one of the more meaner ones he's done. And he's not so much like a mean director, but there's something just really off-putting about it and it's the that quasimodo guy yeah it's gross he's a, he's basically a rapist and a cannibal and a you know it's it's just fucked up it's fucked up 
But I mean, let me go back to what I was saying. The, yes, the music has whimsical, but they're when it's supposed to be serious, it's serious. Like even the music follows in tone. Like when he is doing that to the prostitute, it's not like you know they show his self castrated penis and it does go. <laughs> There's none of that. Or wah, wah, wah. <laughs> but it, no, it's fucked up. That scene alone is like, ugh, I want to take a shower after I watch it. Like, it's just so unnerving and gross and uh, nope. But I will say, until it gets to him getting out, this movie's a fucking bore fest yeah. for me. Until it's the shit really starts popping off. I'm like, okay. I'm I would good. say that's that's more in like the first 30 minutes where it's a lot of just yeah. like Jeffrey Combs, everybody walking around the castle, which was actually Charles Band's castle that he ended up getting. Yeah, I think he still owns that fucking thing. Right, which was the same place even that Stuart Gordon had shot Pit in the Pendulum. And I think what's interesting mm-hmm. is like this and like Pit in the Pendulum around the sort of mid-90s points where you start getting, I guess, meaner Stuart Gordon. Because I would argue as like time went along, he had like a bit of a meaner streak, even like a day gone. I argue it has, like, a meaner streak to it, and as we get to, like, Stuck and Edmund, especially. Keep this is not too long after, like, Robot Jocks, which is fucking silly, stupid shit. <laughs> it's awesome. Know. It's awesome. It's Pacific Rim before Pacific Rim ever happened. Um, yep. but, but it's, you could not tell me, like, oh, yeah, these are the two same filmmakers, obviously. <laughs> it's just, it feels so distinct um, at a turning point. Jeffrey Combs and Barbara Crampton are also weird, we're like, they're so invested in these characters, yet they go to sillier lengths. Like, I would argue, awesome thing about this movie is Jeffrey Combs' drunk acting, because it toes yes. that line between, at points, it's like, oh, this is sad, drunk, and also, this is ridiculous. Like, particularly the bit where it's him and then the sex worker, like, him, they go to the wine cellar, and he's mm-hmm. just fucking standing there, just like, Ugh, yeah, it's a nice little place. <laughs> he's just going for it in the silliest way possible, and their sex scene... <laughs> Is amazing. Oh yeah! Oh my god, <laughs> it's something, isn't it? <laughs> it's it's pretty wild. Like I said, obviously they don't have much meat to chew on. I mean, it is a ninety-minute movie. It doesn't really need to be ninety minutes. I mean, that's even a little too long. It feels it's a- longer than ninety minutes. Yeah, it's ninety-five. Actually, it's about like slightly over. But what I like is the fact that I was right. <laughs> you, you win the no prize. Yes, thank you. But. <laughs> Um, but what I like is the f- you mentioned that, and it makes so much more sense when you hear the origin of this movie, was literally, Stuart Gordon went to Charles Band's office, and he had this poster for Castle Freak, which had, like, a freak and a castle in it, and he was like, oh, what's that movie? Just like, oh, it's just, like, a movie poster and title, basically, I have, don't have a movie, do you want to do the movie? Because, like, you could do it, um, just have a castle and a freak in it. It's literally like the Roger Corman sort of idea of movie making, where this plot comes from, like, you know, here's the title, make a movie. Oh, okay. And I argue probably a lot of Full Moon features as well. This movie is supposed to be, well, obviously by name, Castle Freak. At least it comes across like it should be a very exploitation sort of gore-hound movie, uh, which it does get there. Because I do the practical effects in this. When it gets gross and bloody and even the creature design is fucking really disturbing and really well done. Oh, yeah, the full body effects especially, like, really hold up despite how oh, much yeah. most of the other things about the movie look-wise do not. <laughs> the creature itself looks fantastic, but it just takes too long to get there. It does take way too long. Or even focusing more on Giorgio and how he came to being locked up down there, because we hear about it. We get the story told to us, but it's like, 
and he could have taken that time to be able to focus on his backstory, which, you know, I, I feel like could have been interesting. Um, but I do agree, like, it takes so long for things to t- start to happen. It, it feels so much like a family drama for the first 35 minutes or so. We had to have time for the flashback where we see drunk acting preview <laughs> of him in the car just like, uh, you okay there? What, what's the kid's name? JJ, you okay there, JJ? And he's like, yeah, I'm fine. He's got his Game Boy or some bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's the thing is, I would say even in that first half hour, though, there's still like weird moments that sort of like take place. Even like the weird stilted acting of the daughter character, uh, the Jessica Dollarhide. I'm, I was kind of also entertained by it at the same time. Just like, Mom, you know, I I can go out anywhere. I You can't just keep me locked up in here. Her acting is so wooden. I was convinced that she was an Italian actress that they dubbed. Yeah, I, I would totally agree with that. <laughs> <laughs> and also, like, very, it seems like Stuart Gordon was also just like, hmm, I want Jennifer Connelly circa phenomena in this movie. <laughs> oh, yeah. Let's yeah. Get Absolutely. But no means do I think this is a bad movie, because I really don't. Probably on the more positive side of Stuart Gordon's filmography uh, than the bad, which there isn't really that much bad. It's bogged down so much in certain parts. Like, even the, you know, the two cops, you know, Agua, por favor, the one goes, he's gone for an hour, the one passes out. Okay, and he's screaming bloody murder, he's being hung. They can't hear him. Okay, fine. So then the other one goes and finds him. He dies. So finally, an hour later, Barkhead's like, where is that goddamn water? I'm going to go get it now. <laughs> like, why don't you, you should just, hey, just fucking do that in the first place. You, <laughs> you fucking asshole. Second of all, <laughs> nobody heard those cops screaming. You didn't hear them at all. Yet they heard a mirror break from across the courtyard. I mean, in the same way, no one hears the rattling chains of Giorgio or that horrible cat screaming. They're walking around at night. Yeah, right. Exactly. Which, by the way, also, that, that cat was clearly not into being pulled back like that. And I'm sure uh, Peter wasn't on the set for this, because that poor cat. I think that was a reverse shot. It looked like it. Uh, either that or that cat's a fine cat actor. Yeah, I think that. That's, that's the Daniel Day-Lewis of cat actors right there. <laughs> that's, that's Cary Grant in his next life. Um, it's... <laughs> but like I said, when it does get to the disturbing stuff... And there's quite a bit of it. Like I said, the whole scene with the prostitute is fucking really kind of almost uncomfortable and hard to watch. But even him like trying to fill up the daughter or, you know, Barbara Crampton undoing her shirt and be like, but I'll tell you what, man, that guy takes a knife to the spine and keeps on coming like a banshee, doesn't he? Holy fuck. Well, he might not have been to a spine. I don't know. He's got like that Zelda thing, but still it's. It's disturbing when it wants, to, when it needs to be. Like it, it what it, what it's trying to elicit, uh, it does very well. But I think I agree with you. It, it's it's very backloaded. I would say, for yeah, sure. too like much. This, yeah. Like like where this, but I would still say at the same time, the way it ratchets up. I think that's almost what's so interesting is the fact that the first like third of it is so kind of like innocuous and kind of like lulls you into a false sense of so almost security. And then the castle freak comes in and gets really fucking weird, just ratchets up consistently after that point that it makes me just fascinated to watch it. Even if it is almost in like a weird train wreck, like how the fuck is this going to go wherever it goes? It just, I think that's what's so fascinating is like, it's, it has all these problems, but I can't look away from castle freak. Castle freak draws you. It has a hypnotic effect. I don't disagree with you, but I honestly can say that I don't think I'd be as drawn into the first 30 minutes of this movie uh, and give a shit, which I give very little of a shit. 
but care at all if it wasn't Jeffrey Combs and Barbara Crampton. Right. Right. Because I'm just watching them in a Stuart Gordon movie, and that's exciting. Uh, if it was just some random, you know, D-level, typical full moon, full moon acting fair, I would probably not even get through this movie. I'd have probably shut it off. I agree, but I think that's just very key to like what Stuart Gordon do. Like, okay, I'm going to make this very flimsy movie, but I'm going to get my two very dedicated like uh, best buds who can make the most out of such limited material, which I think they do. Like, I know worser hands, like a Barbara Crampton character could come off so like annoying and naggy in a typical sort of like horror mom mm-hmm. way. But I like the fact that she feels like completely justified in a way where like there's that whole scene where they argue about like, oh, you wish I would have died instead of JJ? Yes. Yes, I do. She does not hesitate whatsoever. Oh, she ain't fucking around, dude. No. <laughs> she, she, she went gloves off. No, you're, you were drunk. You fucking killed him. You murdered our son. It's like, damn. But I agree, dude. That was a really good scene. And in lesser hands, it would have come across real kind of hokey. A lot, a lot more melodrama as opposed to hype. Yeah. Very soap opera Yeah, that's sort of the line. And also when Jeffrey Combs is like digging out a child's grave. He's like, look, there's no body here. <laughs> Like, only Jeffrey Combs could make that as compelling. Especially considering it's like a balsa wood fucking coffin that he pulls out. Yeah, he breaks through the cement with a shovel. I don't know that that would happen. <laughs> Those Italian castles are made just out of balsa wood. Oh, that sucks. One of the things that I really do like about this film, though, is the look of Giorgio. It's, everything about him is so freaky. And I can't even imagine, like, how uncomfortable that was for the actor, you know, having to wear these prosthetics on his body. And then it's just everything about it is off-putting. And then there's the the part where he has the sheets over him and then the blood all over his face, which just makes it even creepier. Like, I didn't think that it could get creepier, but it somehow just made him scarier grabbing on the daughter running around and that final fight with Jeffrey Combs and how just nasty it is. And I I feel like despite all of the pacing issues that I have with this film, it's still really well done when it comes to the horror aspect. And I feel like Stuart Gordon got better as he went along. Like with Dagon, that film's much better paced and I think at this point when he was transitioning to, to more of the darker fare, it took him a while to kind of figure out, okay, how do I want to pace these out? How do I want to really amp up that feeling of dread? Yeah, lots of credit to uh, Jonathan Fuller is the actor's name who played George here, and I completely agree. He has oh, sort yeah. of this weird, like, um, almost proto-Doug Jones-esque, like, physicality to him in that particular Oh, part. yeah, just the posture where he's basically walking on the sides of his feet. <sighs> And I mean, they're running like that and shit. And you're like, oh, I mean, and his balls are out the whole time. Yeah. <laughs> Which a, a lot of credit also, my favorite sort of bit of Giorgio is uh, during that sort of right before Jeffrey Combs comes back in to save the day um, when he's just walking toward Barbara Crampton, the daughter. And he's it's that weird kind of like dragging run, walk where it's almost like yeah. a Frankenstein thing where it's like, oh, he's slow and lumbering, but he'll get to you. And he'll destroy you, basically, the way that he's, like, lumbering forward. I, I do agree that, like, it would not work nearly as well enough for him and also the effects work to, like, that full bodysuit does not look at all like a cheap bodysuit. It looks almost like Sam Raimi-level quality. Oh, absolutely, dude. It's fucking really, really well done. That guy's got to be, like you said, Doug Jones skinny. There's got to be, what, half an inch at least of latex and parts, mm-hmm. and you don't even see it. Like, you don't see, well, A... They were really smart with the way they lit the fucking thing, too. Yeah. Like, you never really get a good shot of him. Other than, like, if you own 
the DVD or something, the cover is his face full on. And uh, I think it works so well. And he's so gross. It's so gross. You know how bad he's got a fucking smell, too. Like, it's just, ugh. And that's another thing. I mean, I'm not saying, you know, because she's blind, she should be like Daredevil. But you wouldn't (laughs) smell him. Like, honestly, nobody smelled him. I want Daredevil versus Giorgio. That's my favorite comic book crossover. (laughs) I know. I know who I picked to win. What are you talking about? A guy who was locked inside of a castle for his entire life and looks decrepit and like his skin and bones? He's going to be perfect to fight against Daredevil. <laughs> there should have been a hallway fight in this whole thing. <laughs> one, uh, you know, and, and, and not to decry any, any people who are visually impaired. Uh, clearly this girl was not. Dude, he's dragging fucking chains through this empty castle. He's He's got to smell like the worst pile of shit in the world. And he's moaning the whole time. He right, he's moaning, and also not to mention, he he has, like, at this point already done the whole, probably my favorite practical effects moment in the movie, when he breaks his own thumb in order to take the, oh. like, handcuffs off. Like, you know he's got, like, have, like, rotting flesh, basically, there as well. It's got yeah. stink also. And a trail of blood from his th- uh, thumb wound out the door. Like, Jeffrey Combs is just a bad detective not to be able to pick up on any of this. Just like, look, here's all this evidence to show you there's somebody in the house. Now, watch it. They, they go into that room. They walk into the room he was kept in. Nobody sees the dead cat, first of all. And this that was the question I had, too, about the second time when they go and they find the prostitute. They didn't see the dead cat. Okay. And then when Jeffrey Combs went in there, you didn't see this giant gnarly thumb on the ground? Like, I would have seen that shit, I think, in a fucking six-by-eight cell. Hey, oh, what is that? Oh, it's a fucking thumb. Maybe we should leave. Oh, my God, look, <laughs> it's, a, it's a skinned cat puppet, which right. I love that oh. puppet, too. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. There's no way that you could smell this fucking guy or hear this guy coming. I mean, it's just, you know, but again, movie. <laughs> but still, oh... He's he because he, what is he wiping his ass with, guys? Guarantee you, it looks like you know the chia seeds that you spread before it grows, like oh. just all just compacted into his ass crack. Uh, I'm really I uh, hope that all of you like five people who are still listening to this episode are, are really quite <laughs> enjoying it <laughs> well, before you turned it off in disgust. Uh, but but I mean, despite like all these questions that you might have about the logic of Castle Freak. <laughs> Very good questions. No, they're they're all they're all very good questions. I think that just adds to the weird, fascinating fun of watching this movie. I think this is definitely a great example of a good bad movie in terms of yes. just like it, it has so many problems, but at the same time you're compelled to like see how the fuck's this gonna like end. I think it's because it's so simple. It has that like, sort of charm that you mentioned, like a Roger Corman, where it's just like they have two elements. They have a castle, they have a freak, and they have good actors kind of filling in the gaps between all that. And I think that's what makes it so interesting, despite all of these weird things. Like, right up until the final battle, which we've referenced. But I like the fact that it's very simple. They both fall over. And I like that Giorgio is completely dead, and Jeffrey Combs has enough time to be like, uh, I'm sorry, I was such a bad dad. Uh. <laughs> Wait a minute. So what would have happened if he jumped earlier in the movie like he wanted to? <laughs> He's just laying there, oh, fuck. I have last fleeting words to say. No one's here. <laughs> the secret combination. Oh, no, I'm alone. And one thing I want to say, so Giorgio had to bite his fucking thumb off and break it off to get his hand out of the cuff, but everybody else, either both their hands could fit in one, or Jeffrey Combs could just slide it on his one hand, too. So that sucks for Giorgio. <laughs> Probably should have maybe tried a little harder. But, um... <laughs> but they, 
It's like, there's no other way? You had to commit suicide, huh? You had him. Could have pulled him towards you, beat him about the head some more, and then thrown him off the fucking thing. My favorite scene that doesn't take place inside of the actual castle is the bit where Jeffrey Combs is talking to his one Italian lawyer guy. He's just like, look, they have no evidence. It's fine. You're going to be perfect. Oh, I have to take a call. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah, you're fucked. <laughs> like, I don't know quickly. Yeah, they got nothing on you. Hold on. They found a handbag. You will go into prison for life. But... <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> Did you agree, Desmond, that despite all of these weird things, you can't help but be compelled by how weird Castle Freak gets as it goes along? Yeah, it's, it's one of those movies where you're like, I have to see how all of this ends. How does this all connect together? And when am I going to see the Castle Freak? It's a very much a, when are we going to get to the fireworks factory <laughs> sort of movie? Are we there yet? A thousand percent. A thousand percent. <laughs> uh, before we get too much more insane, let's go into our final thoughts here. Uh, Adam, you start first. Your final thoughts on Castle Freak. Sure. I'm going to piggyback on something you guys just said. It reminds me of uh, Deep Thoughts with Jack Handy. You know, he took his kids to Disneyland and instead he drove to a burned down building. <laughs> said, oh no, Disneyland burnt down. <laughs> Deep down, I bet they thought it was pretty funny. But um, it's, uh, <laughs> it's just, and, um, you know, Castle Freak, it's a, it's a bizarre sort of movie. It's, it's boring, but it's still watchable because of the people who are in it and who's taking, sort of running it. But then when it gets to the actual, you know, titular monster, it's fucking disturbing and gross and it amps up super fast. But the whole time, it's silly. People are making stupid decisions. There's no logic. And you just can't take your eyes away from it. Uh, I agree with what you said, Thomas. It's it's a good, bad movie. Like, if you sort of want to experience Stuart Gordon as a director, that this is one that I would say, oh, you should see Castle Freak. Because I don't know that there's really that much flair to it or definitive style to it, like some of his other movies. But it's, it's still a fun bad movie and when it gets gross it's gross and i know you're a bigger connoisseur of full moon than i am is this one of the better full moon movies oh yeah I mean, yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah that kind of goes without saying <laughs> Good Lord. Uh, how does it compare to puppet master 3 <laughs> well see i actually kind of like puppet master 3 if you're thinking puppet master the littlest reich well then, <laughs> then we could talk also featuring barbara crampton yeah. Desmond, your final thoughts on Castle Freak. It's one of those films that if you're a Stuart Gordon fan, I wouldn't put it at the top of your list, but if you're wanting to experience a little bit of everything that he's done, Castle Freak is one that you could visit after you've seen some of his better movies. I rated this number five on my top five list, and, and that's the reason why. I feel like there's a lot to like about it, especially when it comes to the practical effects and the look of the monster. I like the setting, and then you have a great cast and a great director. But it's the pacing that really makes this film not quite like a high recommend. But for like, if you're wanting to experience all of his films, this is one that is probably like, wait until you've seen the ones that he's really known for, and then you know check out Castle Freak at some point. It's a deep cut. It's a B-side. Definitely a deep cut. (laughs) Yes, yes. Very much agree that it is such a fascinating, good, bad movie of sorts to watch. It's Castle Freak, despite how many questions you might ask, or how sort of weird the logic is, or how bad, or even just over the top the acting can be, 
Um, it's still compelling, despite all that. It feels definitely like a movie I would have discovered very late at night on cable and been very confused by as a child. And then watched so many years later, it's just like, oh, this is just fun. And it didn't really, like, terrify me anymore, necessarily. But it's just a really weird, bizarre movie that you're just compelled to watch despite its lesser quality. Um, and if nothing else, man, it's Jeffrey Combs' drunk acting. Between sad, drunk, and hilarious, not able to be convincingly drunk, drunk acting. <laughs> it's something else. But uh, that's the end of our discussion of our two movies, though we have some picking to do at the end of the episode. And before we get to that, we have some feedback to read, because every single week on Mondays at DEDBpod, both on Facebook and Twitter, those are our pages. So yeah, every Monday we ask you all, hey, what are your good and bad related to whatever topic that we're covering for a particular episode? And uh, first we got James Rodriguez, uh, who says for Seward Gordon, uh, Reanimator is grisly and imaginative take on the Frankenstein mythos uh, with an exceptional performance by Jeffrey Combs. Uh, From Beyond is also an enjoyable piece, uh, complete with commendable special effects bursting with imagination. The world is a poorer place uh, without such an imaginative streak allowed to be realized. Uh, Rafe Telsch says, I was just introduced to Gordon back in October with From Beyond for an interview that never happened. Uh, Really made me want to check out more of his work, especially collaborations with Combs. Uh, Eric Avon, at Eric Avon on Twitter, says, Instead of best or worst, here are three that I love that might be underseen. Edmund, King of the Ants, and Stuck. In Edmund, Stuart Gordon pulled off the seemingly impossible task of making William H. Macy terrifying, and Macy delivers one of his best performances. And uh, Will Torres says, Le Castle, Le Freak. C'est chic. Which, of course... Yeah, I think... What are some sort of underrated ones for you, Desmond, amongst his filmography? The one that automatically comes to mind is Dagon, because there's so many people that I know that I've never seen it. Um, I mean, I would agree with that. Uh, we covered it on the show previously. It's definitely one of the more, especially faithful, Lovecraft adaptations, just in terms of, like, Fishmen and stuff like that. Um, but I would also say, you know, uh, people don't really realize this, the fact that uh, he was the main creative force originally behind Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Yeah, that's right. The writing credit on those, because he was, was going to direct it, but then he got so many notes from Disney, he's just like, I don't want to do this anymore. And so that was hand over to Joe Johnston, obviously, who is, you know, a commendable director, made a fun little kids movie. But I've always wondered, like, what if he zigged into doing, like, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids? How different would that man's career be <laughs> if he just went <laughs> full on into something that big? Um, and you can also tell that, like, Wayne Zielinski isn't too far of a distant cousin from, like, uh, Herbert West. Really? Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Stuart Gordon's one of the guys that I, I'm kind of glad in a way that he never really did go have a huge mainstream hit. I'm sure he wasn't glad, or maybe he was. Uh, because A, he did keep his integrity. And, and B, it sort of made his movies feel a little bit more special and personal. You know, like Dagon. Dagon is my movie. Yeah. You know, a lot of people don't know about it, and then when you get to share it with them and stuff, you're like, "Oh, you got to see this movie." And there's a lot of his a lot of his work that's like that. I mean, granted, I'm very curious, like you said, about what Honey I Shrunk the Kids could have been, but you know, I'll take what we got. And King of the Ants is also pretty underrated as well. That that's actually that's a pretty good pretty, movie. Yeah, yeah, it's effective. Something I actually kind of discovered while I was doing research for this episode was a weird safety video he did for children in the '80s. Are you guys aware of this? The one it stars Andrea Martin and also is like hosted by Count Floyd from SCTV. And I Hollywood know Montrose of plays a fireman. Huh. Yeah, <laughs> it's on YouTube. It's entire never watched. Yeah, it's it's cute. It's like it's a, a kids safety video, but it's shot like um, one of those like shot on video horror movies from the eighties. Um, <laughs> and there's even like horror movie lighting, and there's a weird appearance by like an off-brand Jason Voorhees at the end. <laughs> 
Um, it, it's it's a cute little short that also shows that, like he at least had an interest in like kind of diversifying his portfolio. That even feels like a weird because that was eighty eight. So it feels like he was kind of trying to prepare for Honey, I Shrunk the Kids and doing more kiddie fare. Um, and I would have wished, like, you know, because he did diversify himself later on. Like, I watched right before the show uh, Edmund, which is the William H. Macy movie that was referenced here. Um, and I do agree that it's a really good performance from William H. Macy, and it's based on a David Mamet play. The way I would describe it is it feels like the 2019 Joker movie, but if uh, Arthur Fleck was more explicitly racist. Because um, it's about mm. a guy who, like, goes around like he's a pencil pusher guy in a suit who, like, just realizes at one point, like, you know what, I'm tired of my life. And he almost has, like, a falling down kind of journey of him being like, you know what, I fuck everything. I hate, like, this world that I live in and I'm going to do horrible, awful things to people. Um, but it feels like it kind of doesn't have much of a point at the same time. Though I appreciate he was kind of diversifying himself um, with that. And if nothing else, I some, they've also been said here, and I agree, Stuck is, I think, his underrated movie. It was his last movie. And I think it's a great idea where, if you don't know, basically the story is Mina Savari plays this woman who uh, is, like, a nurse who is, like, on her last leg. She's going to get kicked out of her apartment, and everything's going bad for her. When it gets even worse, as she runs over a freshly homeless man who ends up getting stuck in her windshield. And instead of reporting anything to the police, she keeps him inside of the windshield in her garage and desperately tries to cover it up. And he's still alive in there. <laughs> yeah, isn't it Stephen Ray? Stephen Ray, yeah, plays the guy inside of the uh, the windshield, and I think that movie's tremendous, especially it's a really interesting commentary on class, in particular mm. given this working class woman versus, like, a homeless man who she is, like, constantly yelling at about, like, oh, God, why do you have to keep yelling? Like, don't you think about this from my side as this guy's, like, bleeding inside of her fucking car? <laughs> it's very satiric in a really palpable way that I wish more people would see. Yeah, I, you've, I think you've recommended that to me several times now, and I still have yet to see it. But. Same here. I've been meaning to check that out and Edmund. Edmund, I saw. I, I wouldn't mind maybe revisiting it just because to see, you know, the later Stuart Gordon, which I, I'll be honest, I'm not as familiar with. Like, I've seen King of the Ants. I've seen Edmund. Uh, but I haven't seen Stuck. Uh, and there's a couple other in there that I haven't seen. Also, he was one of a, a lot of people that was involved with that third version of Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Um, he's uh-huh. got like, a writing credit and producing credit. That one I feel like is underrated in terms of like obviously the first two are like the tremendous top tier ones, but that one has a lot of interesting stuff in it. No, it was like Abel Ferrara right. directed it, and there, there's a lot of interesting people in it too. It's it's curious. I, I would recommend it to anybody. Um, and we also kind of yeah. mentioned it earlier, but uh, Robot Jocks is a lot of fun. Oh, very great. corny, very silly. Oh yeah, and it's literally just like hmm, okay, so we're in a it's in a far off distant future where okay we don't have wars anymore, but different nations settle their conflicts with battling robots. So there's like a robot representing each different country. And it's, it's all like best. great late 80s, early 90s, like claymation effects. Isn't that, that full moon as well? I think that's a full moon feature. Is that, or is it like Empire? I think it's it's Charles Band. I don't know if it's, it's Charles Band. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Either way. I think if you find it now, it's under the full moon library. But yeah, it was probably Empire. Because that was around the time where like that was liquidating anyway and transitioning mm-hmm. into full moon. Yeah, for sure. Especially if you're a fan of Pacific Rim. I am sure Game of the Taurus saw this movie at some point. <laughs> There's without question. Without question. Um, but uh, we want to thank some people like all of you that sent us that feedback, and also Chris Oliver for the intro and outro music used on our show. Listen to more of his music at chrisoliver.bandcamp.com. Thanks to Emily Scarter for the art we use for our show, and of course, thanks to Mr. Desmond Alexander Peel for being on the show again. Desmond, 
What do you have to plug out there? Where can people find you on the interwebs? Oh, well, thank you for having me on. And uh, you can uh, check out my YouTube channel, uh, Desmond's Flicks. I also have a podcast here um, over on the uh, the Legion Podcast Network, also called Desmond's Flicks. And I recently started streaming on Twitch. I'm playing uh, World War Z right now. So uh, check me out on Twitch, also Desmond's Flicks. And I'm all over Instagram, uh, Desmond's Flicks. So uh, come on by and say hi. Yes, you did a really great top five Stuart Gordon movies episode that I would uh, recommend anybody watch on your YouTube channel. Uh, Yeah, thank you. And of course, you can find us uh, at DEDBpod, as I mentioned, on Twitter and Facebook. That's where we put out the feelers every Monday, asking questions about, you know, your favorite, least favorite things related to whatever topic. And uh, you can also email us feedback, doubleedgedoublebill at gmail.com, all spelled out. And you can find me at NotTheWho'sTommy on Twitter and Instagram, uh, where I post my individual musings. I do uh, writing for MarianiThomas.wordpress.com for, like, reviews and stuff, and then uh, TrueSuperheroFans.com for satiric superhero news. And, of course, uh, you can find Adam uh, inside of the castle trying to get, you know, his hand out of that knuckle and God knows doing what to his ass, apparently. <laughs> I'm trying to get that knuckle in the ass. Yeah, that's about it. If you want to see me knuckle my own ass, I guess, <laughs> look for me online. He's got a very yeah. interesting uh, fan cam of his own. With all that, only fans. Only no, fans. Uh, but right around the time you hear this, <laughs> right around the time you hear this, I will have all been on another uh, bonus episode of the Friday Nightmares podcast uh, with you know past guest Scott Crawford and future guest Heather Powell, and uh, that's about it. That's uh, you know, yeah, 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 keeping myself scarce a little bit. Well, if you want to have more Adam, you can always subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and other podcasting platforms. If you're listening on the ESO Network 1, you can listen to all the other great shows on there, or even uh, dig into our archives, even past where we were on ESO, uh, on our Podbean feed, that's our main feed there. And of course, you can rate, review, and even share the show around, and that helps us out to give us more visibility out there into the podcast world. Yeah, I mean... Does it really hurt, especially right now? You got a lot going on? You got a lot going on at home today? There's 103 other episodes you could listen to while you're in quarantine. That passes the time. Slowly. Fucking pricks. Stay home. God's <laughs> sakes. Yes, yeah, stay home. And uh, listen to more Double H Double including next week's episode, which uh, we're doing something interesting, Adam. Uh, this was originally tied to a movie, but a bunch of movies got delayed. But we decided to keep this topic because the topic itself is long-delayed sequels. Yes. Uh, which in some way is a sequel to our sequels episode we did ages ago. Oh, so it's very meta. Okay, I get what you were doing here. <laughs> yes, yes. but And by long-delayed, we specifically uh, put parameters on this. Any sort of sequel that was released from, uh, more than five years after the original movie. Yeah, and there's a lot of, lot of bad ones. A lot of bad ones. I'm very curious to see what the good's going to be. Right, because you have the two bad ones, I have the two good ones, and we've assigned both of our own movies number between 1 and 10, and we're going to uh, do the picking here. Usually, each of us would do it for the other's picks, but when we have a guest like Desmond, uh, they go ahead and do the picking. So, Desmond, for my two good picks, number between 1 and 10. Let's go with 6. Okay. At number 5, we have a movie I've been wanting to do on the show for a very long time. came out six years after the original it's kind of a horror movie, but it's way more of a comedy, and it's one of the most adventurous sequels ever made. It is Gremlins 2, The New Batch. Excellent, excellent, excellent. I've also been wanting to do this on the show. And at number nine, I had Blade Runner 2049. Fuck, I love that movie so much. Very good movie. <sighs> but now, for his two bad picks, Desmond. Number two and one and ten. Let's go with eight. 
All right. At number nine, I have the garbage dumpster fire that was Independence Day Resurgence. Oh, no. <laughs> 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 oh, man. Fuck hole of a movie. And then uh, at number one, I have one that I like, but it was sort of maligned is Tron Legacy. That's one that like I remember at the time watching it because I'd also seen Tron shortly before. I was like, oh, this uh-huh. is. I don't feel like it's any much lesser. I feel like they're both perfectly like adequate movies that match each other in terms of like, wow, this looks great, but I'm kind of bored with both of them. <laughs> that makes sense. And CGI Jeff Bridges is really awful. If they didn't have him in the opening when it's like the actual world, it would have been fine. Yeah, that's true. Because it would have been just like a bad digital version, but they had to have him at the opening because they were so proud of those stupid effects. All right, but Gremlins 2 and Independence Day Resurgence, that'll be... That'll be one. (laughs) That's one. That's That's an episode. (laughs) That is an episode for sure that you'll hear next week. But until then, guys, let's go and move into this Italian castle I was somehow inherited. Nothing bad could happen. Oh, my nipple. See, at least I'm actually Italiano, Jeffrey Combs, a no. Good night, everybody. Good night. has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping through Amazon.com or the Public store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.